Hello and welcome to The Why Podcast, a new series from Think at London Business School, in which faculty talk about their research and what it means for you and your business. I'm your host, Cathy Brewis, and for this episode, my guest is Simona Botti, Professor of Marketing at London Business School. Simona teaches a very popular elective on brand management to our MBA and Executive MBA students. Today, we're going to talk about her latest research project. At first glance, it might not seem to have much to do with marketing at all. It's about advanced care plans, which are documents people can draw up to state their intentions about whether they want to be resuscitated after a heart attack, for example. Without one of these plans, then these decisions are taken by doctors or else your family has to second guess your wishes. So there's something that more people are doing these days. However, not very many. Hi, Simona. Thanks for coming on to the show. Before we get into the research itself, can you tell me how it came about? What actually piqued your interest in this subject? Hi, Cathy. Uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about this project, which is, as you say, probably not what people would consider a marketing project. In reality, marketing is anything that concerns consumers. Consumers are individuals. And I've always been fascinated by how consumers make decisions. And these decisions refer to any type, really, of products or services. And healthcare is a service that people consume. And it's a service about which people have to make decisions. These decisions are often very difficult, very consequential, with long-term consequences with consequences that affect the self as well as other people, family, friends, doctors, society at large. And I've tried in my whole career to analyze how people make these decisions, which are consumption decisions. And so in this case, related to marketing. So this project is about analyzing the factors that make individuals create a healthcare plan and more specifically, actually, factors that influence individuals not to create an advanced care plan, because in fact, very few individuals end up having one. And this is potentially problematic, both at the individual level and at the society level. So I think you told me only 36% of people in the US have one of these plans, and only 7% of people here in the UK and 1% of people in Japan. So it's quite a new idea, isn't it, that patients should have more autonomy over these decisions about their treatment. Quite different from the olden days when the medical profession was very paternalistic and the doctor knew best and they might not even tell you if you had something terrible wrong with you. Advanced care plans actually epitomises this idea of uh, autonomy of the patient, which, as you say, is a relatively new concept And we shouldn't forget that it's not a concept that is familiar to the whole world. It's more typical in the Western world and less typical in the Eastern world, for example. So advanced care plans specifically are documents that are created after what is called an advanced care planning. So a process during which individuals consider different types of healthcare treatment options most of them referring to end of life, but not necessarily. So different types of healthcare treatment options, they consider them ahead of time, and they let family and healthcare providers know what treatment options they prefer, what are the values that they have when it comes to healthcare. And this is in case 
an individual doesn't have the opportunity, in fact, to speak for themselves when the health crisis happens. So if a health crisis happens, we can even consider COVID, which is very familiar to us nowadays, and the individual cannot speak up, for example, because it is intubated. What are the treatment options that the doctors consider? And what would the individual want to do if he could do, if he could speak up, if we could reveal what their values and preferences are? So what happens in these cases is that the decision is up to the family in some cases and other cases up to the doctors. But of course, having a document that records values and preferences would help for the family and or the doctor making these decisions because these decisions would be in line with the wishes and the preferences, again, and the values, what is important for, for, for patients, for consumers of healthcare services. So they're not just for elderly people who are actually approaching the end of their life? Absolutely not. In fact, the idea would be that younger and healthier individuals should be drafting these plans. And of course, these plans can also be revised over a lifetime, and then they should be easily accessible by the doctors and by the family when the health care crisis happens. Now, as you said before, this epitomizes the idea of autonomy of the patient. Is the patient that says, if this happens to me, and if I cannot tell you what I want in that moment, this is what I would like to have. This I'm telling you now, so that when this decision happens, when this decision has to be made, uh, you know what are my values and what are my preferences. In the past, and again, in some parts of the world still today, these decisions were made by doctors. Uh, it was the a paternalistic approach to healthcare decision making. And the doctors, in fact, they swear on their oath when they take their oath that they would make decisions and act in the interest of the patients and on behalf of the patient. So there was this trust that the doctor would know what was the best for the patient that would act accordingly. More recently, and mostly in the Western world, this approach to healthcare decision-making has been revised, let's say, and has been moved more towards this idea of the autonomy of the patient, thinking that the patient knows what he or she wants, uh, the patient knows what the values are, what the preferences are, and the doctors may have a view of the problem that is not the correct view or is not a, a, a subjective view from the perspective of the patient. And so uh, this idea of healthcare decision-making has been um, revised and has been uh, updated to try to incorporate as much as possible the autonomy of the patient, what the patient would like to do to his own body than what the doctors would like to do uh, with the patient. And so these plans is, is one of the ways in which the autonomy of the patient happens in real life. Uh, and again, even though individuals like autonomy, individuals like control, and the patients like want to be autonomous in most of the cases, still they don't seem to take on this opportunity to express their values and preferences as a way to express their autonomy because there are very few plans, few advanced care plans that are created in the world. Most of them in the United States, but still we are talking about, like you said, 30% of the adult population. And in this study, what did you set out to discover and how did you go about it? So our main research question was this one, why there are not more people creating these plans? The literature would say that there are mostly benefits coming out of these plans for the individual because the individual can express their autonomy for the family, 
because otherwise the family has the responsibility, the burden of the responsibility to make these decisions without being guided by uh, the patient, by the individual. For the doctors, because this is stressful also for the doctors, uh, the doctors have to make decisions without knowing what are the values and, and preferences of the individual most of the time. And also it's beneficial for society at large because there are a lot of costs going into uh, making these decisions. These decisions can be very costly and uh, most of the money spent in healthcare are spent on decisions like prolonging life of terminally ill patients. When it seems that uh, when asked the terminally ill patients, they say that actually they wouldn't want to, for example, end their life in a hospital. They would prefer to end their life in a hospice or at home, while in fact the majority still end their life in the hospital because in the absence of these advanced care plans, then uh, it's likely that decision is, is made by the doctors to try anything that is possible. And so this is costly for the individual and is costly for the society. Now, an advanced care plan, of course, leaves the individual free to express their wishes and their preferences and their values. So the preference of the individual can very possibly be, I want everything to be done to me. I want all the most expensive treatment to be done to me. And this is fine. You know, if this is the, the value of the individual and the preference of the individual, this is what the doctors and the family know that they will have to do. But in general, it seems that these plans can reduce both psychological costs and also reduce the, the monetary costs linked to this type of decisions. So it seems one of these win-win situations. But in fact, the reality is that this is an opportunity that is not taken on. So our research wanted to investigate why this happens, why individuals do not have advanced care plans. And we started with real data taken from a, a, a digital platform, free digital platform, in which individuals could you know, upload even videos in which they would express their preferences and values. Doesn't have to be, for example, a written document or a legal document. Those videos, as long as they are accessible and they are kind of certified by the organization to remain, that they are kind of uh, what, what the doctors and the families would follow. So we had some real data of individuals who created healthcare plans. We wanted to see whether we could understand factors and the rationale that led these individuals and whether we could extend them to individuals who still have not created these plans. So can we learn something from those who have a plan and can we apply this learning to those who do not have a plan to encourage them to do so? So we started with this real data and then we moved to surveys and experiments that we conducted online with respondents who may or may not have these plans. The majority of them, the vast majority, of course, didn't have plans. And so we analyzed the data of those who did not have plans to see if there were some variables that we could maybe manipulate eventually, and that would affect at least their willingness to uh, create a plan in the future. So it's a mix of real data and hypothetical data, and a mix of, let's say, real-life respondents who had the experience of creating an advanced care plan, 
and you know individuals who never had this experience but they were given information about advanced care plans and asked whether they would be willing to create one after asking other questions that would cover the various factors that we thought would be important in influencing this willingness. So I know for you social scientists, you know, the size of your samples are very important to get the kind of results that are statistically significant. So this data, this platform that you were looking at with people who'd already made the plans, and then also with your surveys, how many people were involved? So for the platform, we had initially a sample of more than a thousand records. Then some of them were not completed, some of them were duplicates. So we ended up with 895 individuals who had created a plan. For the experiments, it depends. Nowadays, we're looking at, you know, let's say a minimum probably of 100 participants, we say per cell. So the cells are the manipulation of the experiments. So maybe to make it very concrete, we have one experiment in which we try to normalize the decision of making a plan. And so half of the respondents saw something like, imagine that you are in a new country, in a foreign country, and you have to renew your driver's license. And when you go to renew the driver's license, you're asked whether you would consider creating an advanced care plan. Would you do that? Okay, this is kind of simplified, but this is the idea. The other half of the respondents were not given this imagination of going to renew the driver's license. And they were just asked, you know, there is something called advanced care plans. Would you do that? So this is called an intervention or a manipulation. And we have two groups of respondents. One who sees the driver's license and the other one who doesn't see the the driver's license. So usually the norm is to have at least 100 respondents per cell, per group. For the surveys, it depends. We had about 200 participants in a survey. We had 300 in another survey. So we're talking about hundreds of participants, while uh, for the initial data, we were talking more towards the thousand. What sort of variables did you test and what were you expecting to find? And obviously you you go into it with an open mind, but what were you expecting and what was surprising about what you found? So from the initial analysis of the real data, we found there seemed to be a correlation between age of the respondents and specific preferences for healthcare and values. So the older the participants, the more it was important uh, for them not to be a burden to their family, not to be connected to machines. And therefore, the preference for healthcare treatment would be to interrupt uh, life-sustaining treatment, you know, after a reasonable amount of time. But the younger individual were less keen on this limitation of life-sustaining treatments and they were, their values were more probably social. They were more interested in uh, solving conflicts with their families, in being at peace with their families. But their healthcare treatments were more towards trying to prolong life. 
So there was a correlation with age, there was also a correlation with gender, with females being more attentive to, again, the, the social aspects of their life, the burden to the family, and uh, men less keen or less interested in doing so. So we thought that initially we could kind of replicate an intervention in society in which instead of looking just at the correlation between certain demographics and certain preferences and values, whether we could make these preferences and values more salient to a group of people with different ages and therefore having like a higher likelihood that these people were interested in actually creating one of these plans. So, for example, we could see people that were older, we could tell them advanced care plan is a plan that allows you to uh, express your preferences. For example, if you do not want to be dependent on the family, if you don't want to be a burden for the family, you can say so. And then ask, are you interested in creating one of these plans? But uh, surprisingly, this intervention, for example, had no effect. So the difference in willingness to have a plan among those who, with a certain age, they were provided uh, justifications or reasons why they could have a plan that was consistent with what emerged from the real data, uh, and those who were not, there, there was no difference. So then we, uh, again, tried to look for other types of insights from the real data, and we had several manipulations, for example, trying to look at their uh, psychological traits. For example, some people seem to kind of avoid the idea of mortality. And so we focus more on their values, what they value in life, rather than on what preferences they would have for their healthcare treatments that seem to be more eliciting these mortality thoughts, while the values are more eliciting what you value in life, right? What is it that makes your life worth living? So some people were exposed only to the value questions. Other people were exposed only to the health treatment questions. But again, there were no differences. So we try to move from correlation to causation, saying if these factors are correlated with willingness to have a plan from the real data, maybe we could use the same variable to kind of use a causation approach and so to manipulate the information that we give to participants and then measure whether this uh, manipulation of the information would actually change their willingness to create a healthcare plan. That's really interesting because we're always hearing about, you know, these kind of small nudges that marketers can use to affect the behaviour of their audience or their customers. But you're saying that in this instance, those didn't make much difference, actually. Exactly. So, this idea of these manipulations are very much in line with the nudging approach that is used a lot in public policy, right? So, you know, see what your neighbors are doing. Are they paying taxes? You know, why don't you pay tax too? And people seem to be more um, interested in paying taxes. So it's very much going into that direction in which you can have like kind of simple reminder or a simple framing of information or uh, a simple intervention that would make certain factors more vivid than others because those factors do influence people's behavior. But in this case, again, we've tried a lot of those in the spirit, of course, not the same ones that have been used in different policies, but a lot of this relatively simple intervention based on what we had learned from the real-life data and 
they ended up not being successful, not creating any difference in the intention to have an advanced care plan. So, in fact, our conclusion in the end, and I think it's interesting, although very, very rarely you find papers that are published with what is called a null effect. Very rarely you find papers that say, like, we tried this and it didn't work. We tried this other thing and it didn't work. Oh, we learned this from the previous attempt and we tried it and it didn't work. Uh, and this is one of these papers in which we say, like, well, we tried a lot of these simple intervention and they didn't work. So maybe there is something to learn here that in this specific case, simple interventions or a nudging approach may in fact not work. And the alternative is to think about this type of problem in a different way, in a more structured way, in a way that involves institutions and different stakeholders, rather than thinking about the psychology behind each individual and how this psychology can be moved. Why this specific context is a context in which nudge may not work? Maybe because the stakes are very high here. Maybe because it is a very aversive thought to have. Maybe because from from an emotional perspective, this is scary. Maybe because people procrastinate. This is probably on a different scope than paying taxes or recycling or other aspects of public policy that Nudge has been uh, interested in. And because the scope is is so different, maybe the approach should be different and should be larger and more structural and more institutionalized and involving different stakeholders. Yes, yeah, so I was thinking about organ donation. So here in the UK, it used to be something where you had to register yourself saying, I want to donate my organs after I die. And then at some point it shifted and it flipped. So now it's like, you know, they assume that we, I am going to donate my organs unless I've deliberately opted out. So I guess with these advanced care plans, that's the sort of thing that could happen, isn't it, where government or society might say this is a thing that everyone does this is the default unless you specifically choose not to and then it would become a normal thing that people do rather than people having to think about it and voluntarily opt in it would just be part of life yes no this is is a very good question and we thought about it actually there are two ways to address this question the first one is this is the classic default so you set a default and based on what the default is set the Patients, consumers, individuals, citizens have to opt in or opt out. And we know that opting out, it's uh, kind of going against the default is very difficult. Once the default is there, people usually take the default. And so if you say like, well, you're a donor, unless you want to opt out, uh, people don't opt out and, and they stay as they are, right? If you set the default, like you're not a donor and you have to opt in, then people do not opt in and they stay with what the default is. It's very powerful. Defaults are very powerful. And this has been shown in uh, various domains, organ donation, savings for retirement. So even consequential decisions, uh, defaults guide and steer the behavior of individuals. So much so that now there are also ethical issues that have been raised because it is a way of manipulating behavior and, you know, you can ask yourself who set this default and uh, why these defaults are set and why individuals know of the power of this default. There was a very large debate here, and I don't want to get into the debate of, of the ethicality of actually having defaults, 
the response is, of course, as like, you know, any framing of any option then becomes a default. You know, you cannot have a neutral framing of the options and what are the alternatives and are there situations in which clearly there is a right default and then therefore why not using it because this is you know better for society and for individuals but of course you can also see that this is a very paternalistic way of thinking about public policy so this is the first problem the second problem with default in this specific case is that different from organ donation in which the question is a yes or no do you want to donate organ yes or no for example or do you want to donate blood yes or no here, the creation of a plan involves a lot of different steps. So you cannot just say like, yes, I want a plan or no, I do not want a plan. Then the plan in itself involves a lot of micro decisions, each one very important, of course, that you have to set up. And so creating a default in which you have all these default options for all the possible values and preferences of healthcare treatment in a plan is problematic. And the individual has to really you know, think and reflect and probably change these preferences or these values throughout their life. So it's a more complex set of decisions that lead to the creation of an advanced care plan. It's a really complex issue, isn't it? And I really like how this research doesn't ask something and then resolve it very neatly. It really advances the discussion and opens up more questions. Yes, I think this was uh, probably one of our objectives to make it like a topic for research because so far it, it, it's a topic that has been researched a lot, mainly in the medical field, as you would expect, and mainly with data that are either qualitative or correlational data. Like I said, like surveys in which you say like, you know, the older people you know, seem to prefer this, the younger people seem to prefer that, or the people who are more individualistic seem to prefer this. But uh, there was no attempt, or at least that, I, that we know, in intervening. And so in no attempt to study a causal relationship between certain factors and the willingness to increase plans or not. The other thing that has been studied in the past is more not from a psychological perspective, but purely from a logistic perspective. What if we make the creation of this plan easier? What if we make the creation of this plan be done again digitally rather than with you know, a piece of paper? So not from a psychological perspective, but more from a logistic perspective. What are the factors that can influence uh, individual decision to make this plan. So this is probably one of the first papers who look at psychological factors and try to look at the problem from a causal perspective. Is there something that we can do to make people create this plan without, of course, influencing what should be in the plan? That's important, right? Again, in the plan, you can put whatever you want. But as long as there is something that documents and records what your wishes and values and preferences are, seem to be something that, that could be good uh, for individual society. This said, though, in the medical literature, there is also now uh, an nascent body of literature saying that maybe if people do not want to have these plans, well, they should have these plans. Maybe there are reasons why uh, these plans are not so popular. And one of the reasons seem to be or could be the fact that preferences vary over time. And these plans, although they can be changed over time, 
could kind of give a picture of a set of values and preferences that are good at a certain moment of one's life uh, and not actually when the health crisis happen. So what would you say are the main takeaways from all of this for us, given that this is an area where, as you say, huge amounts of money are spent on keeping people alive at all costs at the moment? So it's something that affects all of us in one way or another. What's the main point that you'd like people to go away and think about further? Well, first of all, that is something that we should think about and it shouldn't only be in the hand of the medical literature. So it's something that, you know, if we think about from insurance companies' perspective, from hospitals' perspective, hospitalized organizations, uh, from the patient's perspective, this is, you know, a problem that should be approached by many different, you know, organizations and, and different stakeholders. And the second takeaway is that the problem should not only be studied by different stakeholders, but these stakeholders should get together and try to solve this problem as something that cannot be done only with one approach. So it's a complex process, having an advanced care plan, both from a practical and a psychological perspective, and defies single factor solutions. Uh, it's a complex problem and requires complex solutions, if there is one. And so we end the paper by saying that we should look for a multi-factor approach that requires the joint expertise of consumer psychologists, public policymakers, healthcare providers. We should collaborate to promote a broader cultural change in the way in which individuals and societies understand, talk about, and prepare for critical healthcare decisions. So I think this is the main message. So we are not proposing a solution, but we are proposing probably a way forward in which different entities get together, study the problem from different perspectives, and try to come up with more structural actions. And structural actions here could be at the legislative level, could be at the financial level, there could be, for example, financial incentives promoted to, you know, maybe insurance company, hospitals, doctors. And again, you know, the financial incentives is not to kind of make people make up their mind in one way or another, but at least make sure that people consider seriously this opportunity and then decide to take it or not and also decide how to structure this opportunity. I think in general, there is not enough awareness of the fact that we can have these plans that are not costly, they are not too complicated, uh, and this is one opportunity that we have to have our voice listened to. The third conclusion also is that, uh, and this is something that is very dear to me because all my research has been done in this respect, that maybe there is a little bit of an overestimation of autonomy. Autonomy is a great thing. Autonomy, freedom of choice, these are fantastic opportunities that we have as individuals, as human beings, and they, they are our basic needs almost. But there are limits to the benefits of autonomy. And sometimes we should maybe consider what are those decisions that we cannot make in a purely autonomous way? And what are decisions in which maybe we need experts to guide us? And so reconsidering the value of expertise in some domains in our life, it's important. And this is one domain. It's very difficult that we're really expert in medical decision making, right? 
we may know ourselves, we may know what we want or what we like or what our values are, but how to translate this into specific actions, then at that point, we probably should rely on experts. And so this trust between the health system, the doctors, the hospitals, the insurance companies, and the, the patient, I think, is broken. And while in the past, we would trust our, I don't know, GP to tell us what's good for us and then maybe at the end make our decisions autonomously, nowadays it seems that these decisions are more autonomously than in collaboration with experts. And going back to kind of rebuild this trust and look at these decisions that are joint collaboration between the patient and the doctors and the hospital and the family, it is something that probably we should also consider. So going back and rebuild the foundation of the relationship between uh, the doctors and the customers and understanding how this relationship can make decisions that are probably more beneficial to the individual, to the doctor and to the society. Great. Well, there's, there's so much there, Simona. Thank you so much for coming on and elaborating about your research and going into some of the issues and the, the complexity. I'm sure everyone's going to go away uh, really thinking some more about this. So thank you. And I really look forward to seeing where you take it next. Thank you. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about this research. It's a complex problem. So I hope that I gave you a little bit of a taste of what we try to study. The Why podcast is brought to you by the editorial team at Think London Business School. Follow us here for more episodes on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more faculty research insights, go to london.edu forward slash think. You can also sign up there for our free regular email newsletter to get tips, tools and news for our alumni direct to your inbox. And finally, don't forget to leave us a review or rating. That helps new listeners find us. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Thank you.